Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. Good morning. I, uh, I am probably more excited. I say that a lot of times, so you don't believe me anymore. I'm like the boy that cried wolf. I say it, and then you're like, awesome, and then I say it again. But I really am. I'm probably more excited about the messages that I feel the Lord's been stirring in my heart. It, it's been coming for a while now, and I've been talking to Patty about it. About I really want to teach on grace. Um, I, we talk about grace here. We talk about the empowerment of God and, and the ability and the, the desire that he places in us to, to follow him and to, to live the lives he created us for. But I, I want to kind of go through it, and I, I certainly won't get through everything this week. And, but I also want to teach on the fact that grace invades every area of our lives. That, that it's not just our way of relating to a holy God, but it's supposed to be our way of relating to one another. It, it's supposed to affect our personalities. It's supposed to affect our disposition. Uh, it, it has something to say about the way that we give. I have a message from 2013 that I haven't preached since then on tithing that I am so excited to teach. Um, and But grace invades and influences every part of our lives. And so, um, I'll just see where I get to today and what I don't get to today, I'll get to next week and that, the week after and the week after and the week after. Um, so in, in the beginning, go back to the garden, God creates all these things. He creates the earth, he creates the uh, the, the, the oceans, he creates the stars, the galaxies, he creates the trees and the plants, he creates the birds and the fish and the, the, the animals that are on the earth. And, 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 and after he creates everything, he says, and God saw that it was good. And it's not just saying that to be repetitive because it said it about one thing, so now it has to include that word good about every other thing that he created. It's because genuinely God looked and all he saw was good. So he creates the, the oceans and the fish that would inhabit it in the ocean. And he looks and he says, that's good. And he creates the stars and he creates the galaxies and he creates the mountains and he creates the trees. And he creates everything that he creates in that span of of however long it was that he created. It says, you know, we, we read six days, but then it says a day is to a thousand years. And, and I don't think that's a literal thing. Like, okay, so it was 60,000 years. I think what he's saying is time is rel relative when it comes to God. That you, you, because he said a day doesn't mean that it was simply a day. That it, it could have been 10,000 years. It could have been 10 million years. I don't know. But I do know that um, basically the Bible lets us know. Don't try to put a formula on time when God gives us a, a, a mention of time that it might be a day, it could be a thousand years. But anyways, um, so he creates all this stuff, and he says it's good. And so how many of you guys believe that at that point, everything on the earth was good? Everything was good. God said it. And so if he said it, I believe it. 
Yes. And so we would, get really, we would do really well to get really simple in our faith and get to a childlike place where we say, he said it, I believe it. Um, you don't have to have an answer for why you believe everything you believe. You just have to know the one who is the answer. And if people really want to know and they seek him, they'll find the answer that you have and they might not be able to articulate it either. Um, so then he creates man. And he puts man in the garden, and he says, I've created all of these things for you, and everything here is good. And he has things for Adam to do, but they're not things for Adam to do in order for Adam to gain approval with God or in order for God to be proud of him, because when God made man, he looked and saw man and said, man was very good, exceedingly good, really good. In other words, as pleased as I am with everything else that I've created, when I look at this, the work of my hands... Oh, this is amazing, exceedingly good. And so he's already pleased with Adam. He is already proud of Adam. He already loves Adam. He's already given to Adam. And he tells Adam, go and do these things. But it's not so that Adam can go and earn any of those things that Adam already had. Adam was doing those things because God created him to live a life that was fulfilling and that was full of him, and that Adam would enjoy. And so he created him, and he said, I've given you all these things. And he tells him to, to work the land. Don't think that work came with the curse. I think some people out there think that work was part of the curse, and when they get born again, we no longer work. Remember, he told Adam to work before the fall. The difference was is that Adam did it out of joy rather than doing it out of survival. And so there was one rule, though, that God put in place he tells Adam and he tells Eve, he says, all of this stuff is for you to enjoy, but of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, I've talked about that before, why did he put it in the middle? If he didn't want them to eat the fruit, why not hide it in a corner? Why not surround it with cactus? Well, there weren't cactus then, thorns came with the curse. But why? Why put it in the middle of the garden if you didn't want them to eat the fruit? And I realized as I was praying about that and studying that a while ago that God never wanted our choosing to follow him because, be because of the lack of ability to choose other. So he wants us to choose him in spite of the ability to choose other rather than because of the lack of ability or the inconvenience of choosing something else. So he doesn't hide it in the corner and say, oh, and of the tree, of, well, he could have put it on the top of Mount Everest, right? It would have been safe there for a long, long time, but he didn't. He put it right in the middle of the garden, and he said of that tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat from that fruit because in the day that you do, you will surely die. So there was one rule, and the rule was, don't know the rules. The knowledge of good and evil. Up till now, Adam has only the knowledge of good. Everything that God created, which means everything that Adam saw, everything that Adam touched, everywhere that Adam went, he was walking, he was touching, he was seeing something that God himself called good. And so he tells Adam, he says, listen, there's only one thing that I don't want for you. I don't want you to be conscious of good and evil. I just want you to stay conscious of good. So don't eat that fruit because in the day that you do, you're going to die. In other words, something is going to enter that is not good. And 
God doesn't want Adam to do this because all he wants is for Adam to do what Adam's been doing all along, which is to know him, walk with him, and experience his goodness. That's what Adam was created for. To know God, to do what God created him to do, to walk with him, to have intimate union with him, and to experience his goodness here in the earth. That's it. But of course, like so many of us, God can't be trusted. We can't just simply say, take what he said and say, I don't understand why. I don't know why that tree looks beautiful. I don't know why it has fruit on it if we're not supposed to eat it. See, we do that kind of stuff. We look at something that is clearly written in the word and then we say, well, yeah, but, and we start yeah, butting and adding why this and why that and if not and how come and all this stuff. And it's like, no, none of that stuff matters. It doesn't matter why the tree had fruit. It doesn't matter why the fruit looked beautiful. It doesn't matter why it seemed good to eating. It doesn't matter why I put it in the middle. None of that stuff matters. All that mattered was if I trust him, I won't be having all of those questions because I'll realize he's good. And if he asks something of me, it's because he loves me and knows what's best for me more than I love him and know what's best for myself. Super simple. That's why Jesus said, unless you become like a child, unless you become simple in your understanding. And so... Eve sees the fruit, and the enemy comes along, and he makes an accusation against God, which is something he still does constantly. If God is good, then how come? Well, if God's so good, then why? You've heard the voice of the serpent many times. And he comes to Eve, and he says, did God really say that oh, you can't eat any of the fruits? He always takes what God says is a good thing and perverts it and make it sound worse than it is. Did God really say that you can't fill in the blank with something that God said you were welcome to do as long as there was a condition that you didn't violate? Did God really say that you can't eat any of the fruit? And she says, oh, no, 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 no. She's the defender of God. She knows God's word. Oh, no, no, God said that we can have all of the fruit except for the one tree, which is in the middle of the garden. Of that, we're not to eat or touch. And we talked about this, and I won't go into too much detail, but it's why not adding our own rule to God's word is super important because God never said don't touch it. He just said don't eat it. Now, there's a chance that they took that and said, okay, let's make our own rule that says if God said not to eat it, we'll make a rule that says we don't touch it because if we don't touch it, we will never eat it. It's good to teach our kids when they're, when they're young and they're under our training. It's good to give them rules that keep them from something because if they will keep this rule, you never have to worry and they'll never have to worry about violating that rule. So we don't tell them don't go out in the road and get hit by a car. We tell them don't go beyond this line. Why? Because if you never go beyond that line, there's no chance you'll go beyond that that line and if you never go beyond that line there's no chance you ever get run over by a car and so they probably at some point this entered into her thinking whether it was a rule they came up with whether it was a rule of her own or whether she didn't know God's word as well as she thought she did but she interjects in there a human rule with a godly command with a godly desire it's the birthplace of legalism it was making my own personal revelation or my own personal conviction the word of God oh no God said don't eat it or touch it 
Well, now all that's left is for somebody to do what Eve said God said not to do and prove that it doesn't lead to death. And once that's been violated, now all of a sudden everything else God has said has been in question. So I can only imagine Satan just with his little tail or hands if he had them at the time, grabbing a piece of fruit. I'm touching it, Eve. I didn't die. This is what I presume. I presume that at some point he must have touched to prove to her that her God really wasn't truthful. And if you can't trust him about this, then why should you trust him about that? And that's the problem when we come up with our own law and call it God's word. Because once that's proven wrong, then everything else is in question. Because if I can't trust this, why would I trust that? And so we all know what happens. Eve, now she looks and sees that the fruit was desirable for, was, was pleasant to touch and desirable for eating. It, notice, before that, she never noticed that the fruit was good to eat. It was only when she stopped trusting God that she started to actually desire something outside of what God wanted. It says, now Eve looked and saw. When did she look and see? When she's got to this place where she no longer trusts and no longer wants to submit to what God has said. Everything's been called into question. And if I can't trust him about this, why should I trust him about that? And all of a sudden now, Satan says, God knows that in the day you eat of it, you'll become like him. The problem is, we all know they were already like him. They were made in his image and in his likeness. So if there was something they were missing, it wasn't because God was keeping something from them that was amazing. It was because he was keeping something from them that he never intended for them to know. Don't know evil, only know good. If all you see is good and you walk with me, I promise you, everything will go the way I want it to go and your life will be amazing. So just don't know that. So Eve takes the fruit and she eats of it and she gives it to Adam and Adam eats of it. And of course, with that, sin enters the world. The consciousness of sin enters the world and the blame game starts. You know, God comes and says, finds Adam hiding behind a fig leaf, right? The ridiculousness of the one who spoke the tree that they're hiding behind into existence, hiding behind a leaf that grew on a tree. And he comes and he says, Adam, where are you? Not because God is confused, but because Adam is. And he's trying to get Adam to locate his heart and understand what's going on. And Adam says, oh, where am I? I'm hiding. Why am I hiding? Because I'm afraid. I heard you coming in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And so I ran and hid. Who told you you were naked? In other words, now you've, you've heard another voice, Adam. You've heard a voice you were never meant to hear. Why? Because you ate the fruit you were never meant to eat. And now all of a sudden you know things you were never meant to know. And everything isn't good anymore. Where once you stood naked and unashamed, now you have shame and you try to hide. And so, God, Adam looks at God the way that your kid looks at you when you ask them why they did something they shouldn't do and instantly goes, right? It's not my fault, it's the woman you gave me. And God looks at Adam and realizes Adam has a covering for his sin that he made with his hands. And he's hiding from me. And God understands. He'll never again stand in my presence unashamed if he has to stand in my presence with a righteousness that is made by human hands. So I'll make something to cover his sin and restore his righteousness, his right standing with my hands so that his confidence won't be in his self and his righteousness. His confidence will be in me and the covering that I made for his shame. It's the introduction of the gospel right there in the garden. Okay, so 
now man is cut off from the source of love. Man is no longer living in perfect union with God, no longer walking and talking with God regularly, no longer only knowing good. But now man has this understanding of good and evil. Now there has to be some kind of list of rules that are given because now that we have stepped into right and wrong, we have to understand what is right and wrong. You know this by, by nature if you have children because at some point they go from everything that they do is good to they now are capable of doing things that are not so good. And so you start by giving them simple rules. They reach to touch a hot oven and you tell them no. Why? Because you're mean and you want to control them and you don't want them to have fun? No, because you love them and don't want them to do something that's going to lead them to harm. And so the law was given, the moral law was given through Moses. It was written on tablets of stone and, and there was a lot of law. It wasn't just the Ten Commandments. A lot of, some people think that the law is just the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments came as the moral law. It was to reveal the heart of God for humanity and the heart of God for how humanity would deal with one another. And along with that, because obviously man couldn't keep the moral law perfectly, there had to be payment made and so then along came the ceremonial law and this was how you would sacrifice and what you would sacrifice and when you would sacrifice so that blood atonement could be made from year to year for the, the sins of the, of the people and the sins of the priests themselves. And then there was the civil law, which was given because now that I am no longer walking in love, I am walking in need, I will live at your expense. And so we have to have something that tells us how to solve our issues because issues will always arrive when we live selfishly. And so he gives the Ten Commandments to Moses. He gives them to his people and he says to them, if you will do all of these things, you will be blessed. But if not, you will be under a curse. And of course, the people say, we will do all of these things. I sometimes think when God was asking throughout the years for people to follow perfectly his law, he was just waiting for someone to say, God, I can't. I want to, but I can't. God, I, I would love to live that way, and I would love to do everything that you've asked of me, but... But I look at this list and I realize I can't do it. Instead, they are full of pride, they're full of self-righteousness, and they decide we will do everything that you said. And of course, they didn't do everything that he said. And so the curse of the law came upon them. And because man couldn't love man, man broke the law. Because man couldn't love God, man broke the law. And so God is waiting for the day that he can send the promise that he made in the garden, which was there is one coming, the seed of a woman, not the seed of a man. Why? Sins of the father were passed down from generation to generation. Had he been born the seed of a man, the sin of his father would have been passed down to him. He would not have been born holy, blameless, upright, and spotless. He wouldn't have been able to be the perfect sacrifice. So he's fathered by the Holy Spirit who is perfect. Why? There's no sin in God, so there's no sin being passed to Jesus through the sin of his father. So he's fathered by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and he comes into the earth, and he comes into the earth, and now there is this new and living way that has come into the earth, but Jesus is still someone who lives as a man under the law, and while Jesus is walking on the earth, the law is still in place. It's why he would tell the Pharisees when they said, we tied this and we tied that, he says, you should do that. He doesn't say, I came to get rid of the law. He says, no, you should do that. Why? Because they're still living under the law, and they're finding their righteousness through their ability to follow the law. The law was there to show the futility of man in being able to fulfill the desire of God for their lives. I know this is all probably pretty basic for you guys, but in the weeks to come, I want to really dig into this stuff. But here's the thing. The law was given to whom? 
For whom? The Jewish people. And so Jesus comes. Romans, I'll, I'll make it official with some scriptures. Ready? Romans 3.19. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The law was given to those who are under the law, God's chosen people. And with the law comes the knowledge of sin. Why? Because when I understand what God is asking of me on my own, I am completely incapable of fulfilling it. And so there is a frustration there and there is a knowledge in me that I am incapable of living the life that a holy God has called me to, and I need a sacrifice to be made. I have to go and make offering to God and have a priest who makes offering to God on my behalf every single year to atone for the sins of that year, and every year I'm going to have to continue to come back to that place, and I can't have fellowship and communion with God because of the sin that's keeping me from that, but there is one who can go and and he can enter into the holy place if he lived a life that was worthy of it, and he could offer sacrifice on my behalf so that I would be no longer under the curse of the sins that I'd committed, but yet I lived under the curse of the sins that I was committing. Romans 6.12 says this, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So all of a sudden, Paul is starting to reveal this revelation that was given to him when he was off in the desert alone with Jesus, and it's the revelation of the new covenant, it's the revelation of grace, and Paul starts making these these radical statements and telling people that those who are in Christ are no longer under the law, but under grace. And so is he saying that you now no longer have to worry about living a moral life? Absolutely not. What he's saying is that you no longer find your righteousness through what you do. Your righteousness is a free gift, the grace of God that came when you put faith and believed in what Jesus did on the cross. And so you're no longer, now you're restored back to, and this is what I want to I get to, and I'll, I'll, I, yeah, I'll get to it, that God, Jesus came to seeking to save, to restore that which was lost, to redeem that which was lost. What is God looking for from the beginning? His original desire for man, which was what? That man would live in intimate union with him and would live the life that he was created to live, but not because he was living it by the knowledge of good and evil and a list of rules and saying my righteousness and my right standing with God is because I have done this or my righteousness and my right standing with God is lost because I haven't done that. So... Paul says, for you are, you are, sin shall not be a master over you, for you are under law, not under law, but under grace. So why are we no longer under the law? When did this change? People will point out. They'll say, Jesus even said, as long as heaven and earth exist, the law won't pass away. Turn, that, turn there real quick if you can. If not, I think we'll have it on the screen. I sent up such a long list of scriptures. I'm not sure if they got them all entered in there or not. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus is speaking. He says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, 
Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. That word there for all is accomplished in the, in the original Hebrew means, among other things, to be finished. So he says, listen, I didn't come to tell you that you don't have to follow the law anymore because these people were still under the law. He said, in fact, I didn't come to do that. I came to fulfill the law for I'm telling you that as long as heaven and earth exist, not one single stroke, not one single jot, not one single tittle of the law will be abolished until everything has been finished. Some of you in your lightning quick minds are already jumping ahead. Don't do that, because then it won't be cool when I say it. (laughs) No, I'm I'm really not worried about that. (laughs) So Jesus comes, and he says, listen, I didn't come to say I'm here to live lawlessly and then follow my example and, and, and just believe, and you'll go to heaven. What he said was, I came as a man. Yes, fully God, but fully man. Remember, he, for a time, laid aside his deity. Not thinking equality with God, something to be grasped. Remember it says in the word, for a time he made him lower than the angels. So he's never stopped being fully God, but he was also fully man. And so he comes fully as a man to live the perfect example of following the law to completion. Why? Because no man had ever done it before. And because of that, every single person was born into the sin of their father who was born into the sin of their father who was born into the sin of Adam. Every one of us was born into sin. Because not one man had ever perfectly fulfilled the law. And Jesus said, listen, the law is going to be here until somebody comes and completely fulfills it. So I came. And I did it for you and I did it as you. So I want to look at some Old Testament prophecy. We're going we're gonna to go a little bit late. Listen, when we get done here, I need you to lace your shoes now so when we get done, you can just run to the parking lot or to the children's. I'm just kidding. Ezekiel 36, 24 says this, For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to obey my ordinances. So here God, through Ezekiel, is prophesying the new covenant, and he says this. He says, I will take their heart of stone, and I'll give them a heart of flesh. They had a hardened heart, so he says, I'll take their heart of stone. Why did he say stone? Why not say, I'll I'll take your heart of iron, I'll take your heart of bronze, I'll take your heart of wood. Like, all these things are hard. Some of them are even harder than stone. Why did he choose to say, you have a heart of stone, and I'm going to take that from you, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh? Because in 2 Corinthians 3, 7, it says this, but the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory. So that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of his, the glory of his face, fading as it was. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? Their hearts were full of what? The law, which was written on stone. That's what their hearts were full of. It was full of the knowledge that they had of their inability to keep the law. And the law was in their hearts. And, and, and it was written on tablets of stone. And God says, listen, I'm going to take your heart of stone and I'm going to remove it from you. And I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. So if the old covenant was carved in stones and they had a heart of stone under the new covenant, what is this heart full of flesh? John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of, listen to this, full of grace and truth. This new heart that God promised to give his people in that day, and we know he couldn't have been talking about in the old covenant because he said, I'll put my spirit within you. His spirit didn't come in us until Jesus had died and made a way for the spirit of God to come and take up residence inside of us by making us holy and blameless by his blood. So this had to be the new covenant, and he said, I'm going to make a new covenant. So if that doesn't prove it, I think his words will. And so, but look at what he says. He says, Jesus, the word became flesh. And it was full of grace and truth. Well, what about Jeremiah 17, 9? The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick or wicked. Who can understand it? The old heart, according to Jeremiah, was deceitful. It was stone. And it was wicked. The new heart, according to what God promised through his prophets and through what is echoed in Hebrews, said that he's giving us a heart of flesh and that if the heart of stone was the law, the heart of flesh is through Jesus, then that means that no longer having stony hearts full of the law, full of deceitfulness and wickedness, we now have fleshly hearts of Jesus full of grace, the answer to wickedness and truth rather than deceitfulness. So I'm no longer led by a heart that's under the law that is wicked and deceitful. I'm now being led by a heart that is under grace and full of truth. Look at Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. Although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. They will not teach, you, teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. So what else does this new heart that comes with the new covenant do? Look in, 30, in verse 33, but this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them and, their, and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Aha, see, the law is still there because God said, I'm going to write my law upon their fleshly hearts that I give them. Matthew 22, 36, teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So what is written on the heart of flesh that he gave us to love him and to love our neighbors as ourselves? So he wrote love on your heart and he called it his law. So now, instead of having a heart that when I, when I want to know if I can do something, I look and I go, wait a minute, let me find it. There's 613 of them. Somewhere it must say in here, can I crack sticks on Tuesday? I no longer have to do that. Why? Because I'm not living by the law. I now, the only response that I have is, is this love. Where is this being born of? What is motivating this? Is what motivating this love? If it is, then I'm free to do it. If it's not, first love for God and then love for the person. If I can't pass through those two laws, then I can't do it. But here's the thing about that. That is also utterly impossible apart from this. 
Ezekiel 36, 27. Two reasons we can do that now. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to obey my ordinances. I'll put my spirit in you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and observe my ordinances. It's no longer me having to work up the ability to do what he wants me to do and to live the life he's called me to live. He said, I'll put my spirit in you, and because my spirit is in you, I will cause you to actually do this. So it's no longer my effort and my striving and me memorizing the law and knowing that I can't step on that crack on Tuesday, but I can step on that one on Wednesday, and I can't spit on the ground on this day, but I can do this on that day, and I can't do this, and I can't do that. You know what? I really would love to kill that guy, but I have to obey the law, So, and the law says that I can't murder, so I can walk around desiring in my stony heart to kill him, but then Jesus comes and says, listen, I'm telling you this, you've heard it said don't murder, but I'm telling you if you harbor hatred in your, brother towards your, in your heart towards your brother, you're guilty of murder. What was Jesus saying? Listen, there's a standard that is coming that is so much higher than the law, it's actually going to require that your heart be changed so that your desires are changed, so that you're no longer wanting to do one thing, but not doing it so that you can be righteous by the law. You actually have the want inside of you changed so that the do outside of you reflects what's in your heart. How does that accomplish? I'll put my spirit inside of you and I will cause you. That is the end of striving for the born-again believer. You no longer have to work and sweat to be righteous. What do you have to do? Yield to grace. Yield to the leading of the Spirit. Paul would say in another verse, those who are led by the Spirit are no longer under the law. Why? Because I don't need a law to tell me what's right and wrong when I have God himself leading and guiding me. He can be trusted. I don't have to have the law written down and say, well, I feel like the Spirit of God is telling me to do this, but the law says that. I don't have to live that way anymore. I don't have to live by a heart of stone. I can actually live by the heart of flesh that he's given me. I don't have to worry that my heart is deceitful and wicked above all else and that I can't even know it because he said that he would give me a new heart of flesh and write his law upon my heart. And what's in me, Christ in me, the hope of glory. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ that lives in me. So if Christ is what's alive inside of me, at the core of me, then I'm no longer full of deceit and wickedness. I'm full of grace and truth. Why? Because Jesus came, a man full of grace and truth and then here's the amazing part and this is the restoration of all that was lost in the garden so he says I'll give them in Jeremiah 31 he says I'll give them a new heart write my my law upon their hearts and then he says this and I will be their God and they shall be my people they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying know the Lord for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. How? For I will forgive their iniquity, I will forgive their sins, and their sin I will remember no more. He says they'll all know me. That word there gets talked about a lot. In the original language, it's yada. He says they will all yada me. They'll all know me. They won't have to tell each other to know me. They won't have to give each other stone tablets for them to memorize, for them to know me. He says, no, they will know me. They will yada me. That word yada is the same word when Adam knew Eve and she brought forth a son. 
What's it mean? It means there was an intimate union between two and what came forth was birthed out of love. And God says, listen, once again, you'll have intimate union with me. You'll know me. In that day, you won't know about me. You won't know how to please me. You won't know how to be righteous in your own standing. You won't know how to sacrifice and how to abase yourself. You won't know any of that stuff. What you'll know is not the shadow of me, like Paul calls it, the former, the shadow. What you'll know is me. Why? Because from the beginning, he creates man to know him, to walk in union with him. Not to live by a list of rules. That came because of the fall. It came to point out the need for a savior. It came to frustrate. It came to stir up sin. It came to point to the need of grace. And it came to bring us to a place of desperation so that none of us would ever feel qualified to stand before God based on our own self-righteousness, which is as filthy rags, so that we would come to the place of saying, I can't do this. I need a savior. I need grace. I need your spirit. That's all he wanted. That's all he wanted from the beginning. And in case you get nervous when people preach out of the Old Covenant, out of the Old Testament, here it is in Hebrews. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. How many times have you gone to God with your own effort and said, I'll never do that again? Be honest. How many times have you done something that you said you weren't going to do and you worked up and you white knuckled and you put this thing in place and that rule in place and you cut this off and you turned that in and you closed that door and you did all these things and then you were like, okay, I can do this. And you went to God and you, and you did it for a while, right? Like you didn't do the thing or you did the thing that you, that you knew you were supposed to and you did it for long enough that you suddenly felt like, okay, now I can go to God and I can stand before him. And, 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 and tell him I'm sorry and repent and, and tell him I'm never going to do it again. And you go to him and you say, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to do that again. Please forgive me. And then you turn around and you find yourself doing it again. Offering over and over again that same sacrifice. And he says, no longer. Well, let me just read it. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time onward until his enemies be made footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law upon their heart and, I will, and on their mind I will write them. And he then says, in their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, 
since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. In other words, my heart has been cleansed. I have a new heart that's given to him, and my mind has been cleansed by him, and I no longer walk around with this consciousness of good and evil. I'm not trying to figure out whether or not I can do this if it's good or I can't do that if it's evil. And, and I'm not doing that anymore. I've yielded myself to the Spirit of God, and grace has come along inside of me and has given me both the will and to do what God is asking of me. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans. He says, For it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to do. What's he saying? He's saying, Listen, if you want to try to do this on your own, you're more than welcome to. It'll frustrate you, it will never work. You'll get exhausted, you'll get worn out, you'll get beat up. You'll be like the prodigal son who decided he wanted to go and live on his own and ended up living in the pigs, eating what they ate, wishing he could have their meal instead of having to give it to them when the offer of the father was to come and sit at his table and eat the best that there was. You can do that if you want to, but if you do that and you subject yourself to the law, you now are obligated to keep every bit of it. Or you could come to the place of saying, I can't do this, and surrender to the Lordship of Jesus, and allow not your hands just to be washed, but your heart to be cleansed. And instead of having a stony heart full of the law and deceitfulness and wickedness, you can have a heart of flesh given to you, and it's full of grace, and it's full of truth, and he writes his law upon your heart, which is what? Just love me and then love others. That's the only rules that I'm giving you. And if you will do that, you'll fulfill everything else that was ever asked of you. But you won't do it by focusing on fulfilling the law. You'll do it by focusing on loving me. And out of the overflow of the love that I have for you, you'll love others. And I, I want to talk about how grace influences our marriages and how it influences our relationships and how it influences every part of our lives. And we're going to teach on that. Next week, I'm going to go through a little bit more of this stuff. But I just want to start with this. Would you guys just stand right now? Listen, if you've ever held on to those Old Testament verses that say the, the heart of man is deceitful and wicked and who can know it, and you've, you've even maybe taught other people that when people come and, they, and they're excited about what God's doing in their life and you've said, yeah, but you know, the Bible says that the heart is deceitful and wicked. Be careful. Who can know it? You can't even know your own heart. Or you've lived under that condemnation thinking I'm full of wickedness and deceit and my heart is hard. I want to bless you with this. That if you're born again in Christ, you're no longer under the law, but under grace. And you no longer have a heart of stone, which is tablets with laws and rules written onto them. You have a heart of flesh, and it's Jesus that lives within you. It's no longer you that lives, but Christ that lives in you. And you're no longer full of wickedness and deceit. You're full of grace and truth. I don't feel like it. Thank God that your feelings aren't Lord and that Jesus is. And don't live by your feelings, live by truth. So what does that look like? It looks like yielding to him and saying, God, I'll be honest with you. I don't feel like this, but I know that your word says that I need grace to come and teach me. I'm yielding myself right now to you as Lord. I've made a mess of things. 
I've done things my own way. I've lived a pretty good life and I've taken pride in my righteousness or I've lived a pretty horrible life and I'm ashamed of my unrighteousness. You know what? Both people would stand before God and be guilty and both would go to the same eternal destination which is separation from him in hell. The person who was the proudest of their righteousness through their acts and the person who was the most ashamed of their unrighteousness through their acts, if neither of them yields their life to Jesus, both of them would face the same sentence. So whether you're someone who has taken pride in your good deeds or whether you're someone who finds shame in your evil deeds, the answer is simple. It's Jesus. It's the gospel. It's being born again a new creation. It's being filled with that spirit that Jesus promised and having that heart of stone taken from you and having that heart of flesh placed inside of you, a new heart with love written on it. Having your conscience cleansed from sin, meaning what? I'm no longer walking around conscious of sin. I'm walking around like I was created to from the beginning, conscious of good. Why? Because my eye is single and my whole body is flooded with light. All of a sudden now when I look at a bad situation, I don't see the, the evil. I see it as in like I'm not ignorant of it, but I don't, I'm not overwhelmed by it. Why? Because I believe that the answer is inside of me and his name is Jesus. Because I believe he wouldn't call me to see something that he hasn't called me to respond and help be the answer to. And so if you've ever felt that way, if you've ever, if you've ever, if you're tired of living a frustrated life where you feel like you white knuckle it, you white knuckle it, you white knuckle it, you do good, you do good, you do good, you do good, and you start to feel really good about yourself, and then you, you fall short, and you feel ashamed, and you feel guilty, and you feel condemned, and you confess, and you, you, you offer that same sacrifice once again, and then you white knuckle it, and you white knuckle it, and you white knuckle it, and you start to do good, and you feel pretty good, and all of a sudden you fall again. If you've been stuck in that cycle, it's time to let go. Let the blood come back into your hands. Let the white knuckles return to tan. And to actually let go of your own righteousness that's found through your acts. And to allow grace to come. And to yield to it. And to allow your heart to be changed. To where you're not fighting against yourself every day. You're following Jesus. Where he gives you the desires of your heart. So if there's anyone in here that, that feels like that, just put your hands out. And just receive what the Word of God says. And in that day, I will put my spirit in them and I will cause them to follow my laws and to observe my commands. He doesn't say, and in that day, I'll put my spirit in them, and then they will work really hard to follow my laws and observe my commands. He says, I'll put my spirit in them, and I'll cause them. I'll do the work. I'll transform them. I'll change them. I'll give them a new heart. I'll place my spirit inside of them. I'll write love on their heart. And in that day, no one will have to tell them to know me. For they will all know me, from the least, if you consider yourself the least in here, to the greatest, if you consider yourself the greatest in here. In a room full of Christians, we're all like, I'm least. But we rank ourselves, if we're not careful, 
But even if you feel like you're the least in here, God said, they'll know me. They'll have intimate union with me. I'll be inside of them. They'll be inside of me. And they'll know me. And their heart will be to know me. So I just bless you right now in Jesus' name with his word. If you're born again in this place, if you've surrendered your life to Jesus, if you've been born again, you no longer have a stony heart but a heart of flesh. You no longer have the law written on your heart. You have grace and you have truth and you have his love written upon your heart. You no longer have to try to be good enough to earn his, his approval or his pride in you. You've found approval and you've found pride because you're in Christ and Christ is in you. Would you just get alone at some point today and just get before him and just say, God, I can't do this anymore. I've tried and I've failed and I've come short of the glory of you, but, but I know that you've called me to walk in righteousness. And I know that you said you would give me your spirit and you would cause me to walk in a way that's pleasing to you. And I know that you said you would change my heart. So God, I'm just here for every bit of it. God, would you come right now and let your spirit fill me afresh? Would you let your love get written on my heart? God, would you show me, would grace come to both cover everything that I've done, but also to empower me to never be there again? Because God, I really do want to live the life you've called me to live. I just don't know how. And I need you to show me. And I promise you he'll answer every single time. And grace will come because there's faith. And suddenly you'll be living a life on accident better than any life you ever tried to on purpose. In Jesus' name, I bless every one of you with the knowledge that you're no longer under the law, but under grace if you're in Christ and being led by his spirit.